All right. Well, today we are continuing our study in the book Divine Blessing and the Fullness of Life in the Presence of God. Uh, Pastor Fry last week went through the introduction to the book, and today we'll be in chapter one. Chapter one is titled Blessing and Curse, Life and Death. As the name of the book suggests, the focus of the book is on the biblical concept of blessing. And as Pastor Fry stated last week, um, the intended meaning of the word blessing has largely been lost in our culture. Um, To be sure, the word blessing is used regularly. You hear people use the word blessing all the time, Um, but it's often used without an understanding or even a thought as to what it truly means and what all is entailed in the word blessing. Uh, For example, um, when people talk about blessings, there's often an acknowledgement of um, having received or having uh, in being in possession of material things or enjoying pleasant life experiences, for example. But there's typically no recognition that uh, a blessing, just like a gift, it always involves two parties, right? A blessing involves the party that receives the blessing, but it also involves a party who gives the blessing. And it's that giver of the blessing that most people in our society uh, fail to acknowledge. But as Christians, we absolutely cannot fail to acknowledge that God is the giver of all blessings. And so a big part of this study is helping us to refocus on that fact, that God is the giver of the blessings that we get to enjoy. Um, As James says in the first chapter um, of his epistle in verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is the giver of all good things. So the goal of this study is to remind us of that fact uh, and to help us better understand what God's Word teaches us about how God has blessed his creation. Um, As the author states in the introduction to the book, The message of this book is that divine blessing in the Bible looks like God's creatures experiencing the fullness of life, both physically and spiritually, in his presence. So as I mentioned, we'll be covering chapter 1 today, and uh, similar to the other studies that we've done in biblical theology, chapter 1 starts out at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. And this should come as no surprise because the first few chapters of Genesis, and particularly we're looking at um, the first three chapters here today, mostly chapters one and two, but, you know, those introductory chapters to Genesis contain so much foundational material for us to uh, understand who God is, what he has done in creation, and what his purpose is in creation, and how we can live in light of that purpose I think the overall theme uh, of the chapter can pretty well be summarized um, in a sentence that the author included in the introduction to this chapter uh, where he says, God in his original design at creation gave the blessing of abundant life to be experienced in his presence. So you can pretty well tie that into the title of the book, 
you know, uh, the blessing of abundance of life and the fullness of God's presence. That was God's uh, creation design, his creation order. All right. Well, in this chapter, we'll look at several aspects of blessing that we see in those first three chapters of Genesis, uh, particularly, as I mentioned, chapters one and two. Um, And the first of these blessings is that God creates to give life. Osborne points out in the book that the very first blessing we read of in Scripture is in the very first verse of the first book. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Indeed, God's choice to glorify himself by bringing into creation or bringing into existence all of creation is in itself a blessing to that creation. And then, as we go forward in the chapter, the first explicit mention that we have of a blessing, the first time we see the word blessing being used, is on the fifth day when God created the sea creatures and the birds of the air. Uh, What we see uh, in Scripture in verse 22 is that uh, it says, And God blessed them, it's referring to his creatures, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. So this is the first time in Scripture that we're introduced to this notion of a divine blessing. In God's blessing of his creatures, he confers his design and intent over these creatures. Specifically, what we see here is that the blessing is tied to this uh, command to be fruitful and multiply. Clearly, life itself is a blessing from God, and the propagation of life is a blessing from God. The author underscores this point uh, with a quote from James McCown, who says, in this context, these verbs, uh, be fruitful and multiply, is what he's referring to, uh, these verbs are used together to give maximum prominence to the concept that the Creator's blessing would lead to a world teeming with life. So God's blessing upon his creation is a world teeming with life. Life itself is a blessing from God. Uh, From the beginning, life is depicted as a very good thing. And of course, we will see these words be fruitful and multiply again shortly. So the next blessing we see from God as we progress through uh, Genesis is um, the blessing upon the man and the woman. Uh, Day six of creation presents the pinnacle of God's creative life-giving project. In verse 26, God creates the man and the woman, and then in verse 28, he blesses them. So let's look at those verses. In verse 26, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Then in verse 28, And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So again, we see this command to be fruitful and multiply, but we also see a number of differences in the blessing that God pronounces on the man and the woman 
compared to the blessing that he previously pronounced on the other creatures. Uh, For one, there's a slight difference in the way that the blessing is described. Uh, God here is described as speaking uh, the blessing to them, to the man and the woman, as opposed to simply pronouncing the blessing over them as he did with the creatures. Uh, This subtle difference depicts the unique and personal relationship that the man and the woman have with God. And this makes sense, given that they, unlike the other creatures, were created in God's image, right? Uh, That concept holds within it many things, many more than we have time to go into this morning, but, uh, you know, one of the things that's included there is that, you know, man was created not only as a physical being, uh, but also as a spiritual uh, component uh, in the same way that God is a spirit. Um, We also see in this passage that man is commissioned to have dominion over all the creatures of the earth. And so in this way, uh, God's image bearers were um, to reflect their maker's reign in the world. Um, They were to be his vice regents, uh, essentially, uh, reigning over the world that he had created, having dominion over all living things, and thereby giving glory to their creator. But we also see once more, as we mentioned, that God's blessing is linked to the mandate to be fruitful and multiply, which is the means by which the man and the woman would fill and subdue the earth. They would have to increase. And, and this is critical, and we have to not just rush past this as it's tempting to do. Um, as the author points out, Procreation itself is a blessing from God. Life itself and the propagation of life is a blessing from God. Uh, And the marriage, the one flesh union between the man and the woman that we read of in chapter 2, you know, um, not too far past where we are now in chapter 1, that is what results in the procreation and the flourishing of human life. That union, that marriage, is a blessing, right? And it brings about the blessing of life uh, being propagated throughout the earth. Uh, But, saints, do we think of marriage and childbirth and and raising children as a blessing? Uh, I know that here, you know, for those in this church, I'm I'm preaching to the choir because, after all, the name of our church is Grace Family Baptist Church, so I know that we certainly have a a great reverence for the family. It's right there in the name of our church. Um, But our society does not see these things the same way that we do. Um, And we see evidence of this all around us. Uh, You know, the age at which men and women are getting married and having children has consistently risen um, over the past decades um, as people have prioritized things like affluence and autonomy over uh, the desire to be married and to be blessed with a family. Um, Our country has a massive abortion industry that's founded on the idea that to kill a baby is a better option than to give birth to that child and have it get in the way of whatever else you might have planned with your life. Our society is obsessed with, with death and does not appreciate the blessing of life. With the proliferation of no-fault divorce, birth control, abortion, the institutions of marriage and having children have essentially 
um, become optional life choices that exist solely for the purpose of your own personal fulfillment. And you can, you know, take part in them if and when you so choose, you know, based on whatever is convenient for you. That's essentially the message that our society sends in the way that it behaves. But from the beginning, it was not so. And that's what we see here in this study. Again, from verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Being married, having children, these things are blessings from God. But is this the way we view them? Of course, we affirm that these things are blessings. But is this always the mental attitude that we maintain? Um, When we talk about marriage and family, do we talk about them like they're blessings? Um, When we talk about our duties as parents um, and raising children and disciplining children, and trying to teach and instruct them, do we talk about them as if they're blessings or as if they're burdens? When we speak of our children, does the way that we speak about them make them sound like blessings or burdens? Saints, we must be careful about how we think about marriage and how we think about parenting and how we talk about these things. Um, Certainly, there's nothing wrong with sharing with others you know, the burdens that come along with uh, these duties that God has given us. But we have to be very careful in the way that we think about them, the way we talk about them, not to allow ourselves to start to, to see them the way our society sees them, as, as burdens or as things that only exist for our personal fulfillment. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what the Lord has taught us in his word. We have to maintain a godly perspective of these institutions of of marriage and the family. And it's critically important for us that we do this um, for the sake of the young folks among us uh, who are looking to us to help them understand what is the purpose of marriage, what is the purpose of family. Um, There are many in our culture today who are denouncing marriage entirely uh, they, you know, essentially portray it as something that's not to our personal benefit. Um, and there are movements afoot and picking up steam that are encouraging young people not to even get married or have children, saying, why, why would you go there? Why would you go to all that trouble? Why would you take all the risks, personal risks, you know, your people say, that come from getting married and, and having children? And the only way these movements have any traction is because as a society, we have forgotten what marriage is. We've redefined it in some ways, and we've forgotten its purpose. But saints, we have those answers. We have them, and they're right here. Marriage and children are blessings from God. The purpose is to bring God glory through the fulfillment of his mandate, to fill the earth and have dominion over it, to be good stewards of his creation, and to spread his image throughout the earth to the glory of his name. We know this because scripture is replete with these statements, no statements to this effect. Proverbs 22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Uh, Psalm 127, three through five, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. 
Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. But folks, we don't even have to get out of Genesis 1 to see this. And that's what we see here in this study. Um, We have the blessing and the purpose of marriage defined for us right here already in the first chapter of Genesis. Um, Let us hold fast to this and cherish these truths and let us live them out. Um, And certainly, you know, as I said very importantly, let us teach these things, share these things with the young folks among us. We know what marriage is designed for. We know the purpose and we know how it glorifies God and how it blesses us. It blesses us. And so, you know, let us commit ourselves to always thinking about it this way, thinking about marriage and family, talking about it this way, and sharing this with, with the young folks among us. And then, uh, you know, the author really sums up, you know, the point he's making with, I thought was a really good statement. He says, the blessed life is that fullness of life which corresponds to God's good design. If we remember what God's design is, that helps point us to how we ought to live in order to live a blessed life. And then moving on to the next blessing we see here in Genesis, um, as we move into the beginning of chapter 2, we see a third blessing. Initially we saw first, right, was the blessing on the creatures. The second blessing we saw was on the man and the woman, uh, God's image bearers. And then the third blessing uh, we see is actually not a blessing on any particular um, creature, but a blessing on a particular day. Uh, There in chapter 2, verse 3, we read, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, this is the first blessing that we see in Scripture, as I mentioned, that's not ascribed to a living creature. You know, it's described to the Sabbath day. God actually blesses a day. As the author notes, this blessing is not set against God's uh, creative work. Rather, it's the celebration and the consecration of his work of creation. God consecrates the day or makes it holy by setting it aside as a day of rest. Uh, Osborne describes the initial blessing of the Sabbath in the following way. He says, Embracing God's Sabbath rest meant experiencing the sense of completeness and well-being God had accomplished at creation on behalf of all human life. This opportunity that God gave to his people to rest in the completeness of his work and creation was indeed a blessing for his people. But yet this also continues to be a blessing for his people now as we rest not only in the completeness of his work and creation, but also in the completeness of Christ's work in the redemption of his people. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead uh, because we will be covering all of this in, in later chapters, but it's, I think it's easy for us to see that tie between the, the blessing that uh, the man and the woman enjoyed at creation of getting to rest in God's completed work of creation and the gift, the blessing God has given us that this one day in seven we observe gives us the opportunity to rest um, in the, his completed work 
of the salvation of his people, the redemption of his people. Um, so again, the, the Sabbath day itself is a blessing. And again, I can make the same comments uh, you know, as I did about uh, marriage and family. We have to be uh, you know, constantly reminding ourselves that we should think of it as such. It is a blessing and not a burden. The next aspect of blessing that we see in the creation account is that God creates to dwell. So in this section of the chapter, the author points out God's creation of the Garden of Eden was a blessing to the man and the woman as it provided them with a a place to dwell and to worship him. Uh, When God created Adam, he didn't just create him and then send him out onto the earth, you know, with a slap on the back and a hearty good luck. No, no, God created a specific place for the man. Uh, He created a garden of great beauty, as we read, Uh, great beauty, great flourishing. Um, And it provided Adam and Eve with all of the resources that they needed in order to not only survive but to thrive. It gave them a purpose, a place within which to work, um, and it uh, provided them with a place to dwell, uh, to work and to keep, to enjoy and to bless. Um, But it was not only a place for, uh, for man to dwell, it was a place where God himself would dwell. Um, We see that in multiple instances uh, in Genesis where God is interacting with Adam in the setting of the garden. Uh, We see it when God comes after uh, uh, Adam and Eve's uh, sin and eating the uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see God, uh, you know, walking through the midst of the garden. This was a place where God would dwell with man. Um, And in fact, as we've stated before in many of our previous uh, biblical theology studies already, um, the Garden of Eden is better understood as a temple garden, essentially a place where God would dwell with his people. Um, Osborne states the following uh, quote whenever he talks about uh, Eden and its connection to the blessings of God in creation. He says, recognizing the temple garden nature of the Garden of Eden is important. The garden is the location where God's divine blessing is to play out. God's original blueprint is for the whole earth to become a temple city filled with people who have a holier priestly status. And this blueprint hinges on humanity's access to the presence of God. It is from this temple garden that God would bestow his blessing upon his creatures. So we've seen, you know, already uh, God blessing the man and the woman with life. He blesses them with a place to dwell, not only a place for them to dwell, but a place where he will dwell with them and he will continue to bless them as they fulfill his commands to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth in his original design. Um, these are you know, wonderful blessings that our first parents were offered um, uh, you know, graciously by God. Now next, we'll look at a couple of different aspects of how God has created in order to bless. And in particular, we'll focus on how blessing, you know, as we've seen, is a prominent theme 
in Genesis, but also a misunderstood theme. So from the passages that we've covered already in chapters 1 and 2, we've seen pretty clearly that blessing is a very prominent theme. God's blessing of the earth and the blessing of uh, the man and the woman are um, replete throughout the first couple of chapters of Genesis. Um, And the cultural mandate that was given in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, to be fruitful and multiply, to have dominion over the earth and subdue it, um, God will see to that. You know, in commanding that, the the idea was that God would see to it. He would make sure that it did um, happen. And what we will see eventually is that even when the man and the woman rebel against God, um, they'll continue to carry out this mandate with God's enabling power. Um, so we see all of these blessings, you know, and it is important for us to, to not miss these, to appreciate the blessings we see in Genesis. However, we also have to be on guard against um, misunderstanding of these blessings. Uh, indeed, as the author points out, the theme of blessing is unfortunately a theme that often is misunderstood or is uh, twisted um, into false teaching in our day. Um, one particular area that the author highlights is that we see the theme of blessing being twisted, uh, particularly um, in the Word of Faith movement um, or the prosperity gospel, name it and claim it type teaching uh, that's promulgated by folks such as Kenneth Hagin or uh, Kenneth Copeland or Houston's own Joel Osteen. And the author helps to illustrate this for us so that we can better appreciate it by giving us a couple of quotes from Joel Osteen's writings um, that show how uh, one can take this biblical concept of blessing and then preferred it into something that Scripture would never give you, that Scripture would never recognize. Um, I'll read these quotes, these two quotes that he gives, and I encourage you to listen and to think about where, where does this go wrong. All right, first quote. When God breathed his life into you, he put a crown on your head. This crown represents your authority. It represents God's blessing and favor on your life. When you're wearing your crown, you'll have a sense of entitlement, thinking, I have a right to be blessed. I have a right to live in victory. Well... We talked about Adam and Eve being uh, designed to reign over the world as God's vice regents, right? And they were divinely blessed by God. Um, The problem is that Osteen applies this to each one of us, and he even goes further to say that we're entitled to be blessed, um, that we have a right to be be blessed. So where did he go wrong? Uh, Second quote, God is going to balance your books. Payback is coming. That attitude of faith is what allows God to pay you back for what you're owed. Yeah. Again, notice the language. Uh, blessing is what God is going to give to us because that's what we're owed. It's our right. We're entitled to it. So what's wrong with this? Where has he gone astray? Well, again, notice the language. Blessing is what God is going to give us, um, you know, and when it comes to the ways in which God blessed our first parents, Adam and Eve, God didn't owe them that blessing. 
He didn't know them anything. They didn't even exist until he decided to bring them into existence, right? So the concept that God owed anyone a blessing, even at creation, is completely off. In fact, the very word blessing, just like the word gift, um, excludes the idea of it being owed to someone. If God was giving Adam and Eve what they deserved, what they had merited, that would be a wage. It would be something that they uh, were owed. But it was not a wage. It was a blessing. It was a gift. It was God's grace. The very definition of the word precludes it from uh, you know, including this idea of being owed to somebody. Um, God blessed them out of his generosity. Um, but second of all, think about the first part of Genesis. Um, and think about what else Osteen is missing here. Um, you know, we, he's talking about blessing, which we, as we said, is a prominent theme in the first couple of chapters of Genesis. But what's missing here? He's missing chapter 3 of Genesis, right? And everything that happens there. Um, He's missing the fact that Adam sinned, that we have all sinned in Adam, and that the only thing God owes us is wrath and eternal punishment. The only way we avoid this wrath is by God's grace, in that, you know, he has chosen to save his people, and that he has provided a means to save them in Jesus Christ, in Jesus' perfect obedience to God's law, where Adam could not obey, did not obey, and where um, God, uh, Christ's righteousness is applied to his elect, and their sins and the wrath due for their sins is forgiven because of Christ's atoning work on the cross. That is how we're saved. Saints, we do not want to receive from God what we're owed. We're, we don't want what we're entitled to. We're entitled to God's wrath. But praise God for his mercy and grace that we receive the blessings of Christ and his righteousness and not the wrath that we deserve. At its core, this type of word of faith teaching, and it's not just Osteen, it's others if you hear them speaking or read things they've written. Um, Whenever you see it, um, you can use this same lens to help understand where they're going wrong. They grasp onto this concept of blessing from Genesis 1 and 2, but they completely ignore the fall in chapter 3. And it's helpful to keep in mind when you're if you are exposed to that teaching, and particularly if you're trying to minister to uh, someone who has come under the influence of that type of teaching. So this discussion, uh, you know, kind of getting into chapter 3 now, leads us to the next point of the chapter in this book, that man rebels against God and uh, has the blessings of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 reversed into curses. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 3, we read, But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. When our first parents disobey this command, when they transgress this command, uh, they break his covenant of works and bring upon themselves the curse promised in that covenant for disobedience, that being that they would surely die. As a result of their sin, they are rendered spiritually dead, physically mortal, 
and they are expelled from God's presence. So the blessings of living life in abundance and the fullness of God's presence that we've talked about, these blessings they'd received in chapter 1 and 2, are now put in peril. And this sets up the tension that will play out throughout the remainder of the Bible. What will happen to the man and the woman? What will happen to these rebels? Will they be utterly crushed? Are the blessings of Genesis 1 and 2 still intact? Or have they been lost for good? Has man missed out on the greatest blessing ever imaginable, living this blessed life in the presence of his holy creator God? Well, these are the things we'll look at over the coming weeks. But right there in chapter 3, God graciously leaves our first parents with a glimmer of hope for the future. Um, That all indeed was not lost as a result of their sin. That there was still an opportunity there for them to enjoy God's blessings and to enjoy this fullness of life in the presence of God. In God's cursing of the serpent, we read in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So we see here, even in the midst of a curse being placed upon the serpent, um, that a blessing is pronounced upon the man and the woman. Um, And further, they're given a promise that their offspring, or the seed of the woman, will eventually crush the head of the serpent, Satan. This promise from the Lord confirmed both that God would still bless his people through procreation, through the promulgation of life, and that a descendant of the woman would eventually come to defeat Satan and to restore humanity to this blessed life that they enjoy with God, being saved from their sins, being able to have peace with God once more. What we'll see as we continue through this study in the next few chapters is that God plans to bless, his plan to bless will move forward um, through the birth and the life of his people. And uh, next week we'll be looking particularly at how God's blessing moves through the life of his people uh, in um, various biblical families, but ultimately the family of Abraham is what our focus will be on.